Listen to the word of God. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said of those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court. With him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks, or everyone who looks at a woman with lust, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Through your word proclaimed, may we encounter you, the living word, anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What people find funny is, is pretty individualistic. For instance, I like satire and absurdity. All right? So um, I used to stay up late at night when I was in high school and watch this strange British comedy that was on PBS, uh, the uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And... Uh, you either thought that was funny, or you didn't think it was funny. And we found out very clearly. And I just remind, recently Terry Jones passed away. And uh, they were already old reruns when I was watching them. But uh, I thought it, it was funny. And again, growing up or, or raising a group of boys, we would often discover when um, a girl would come to the house that our sense of humor may not actually be what everyone else finds funny as well, right? So. You have to understand that my humor has been shaped by all those things. So, <clears throat> so you may or may not find the movie Anchorman, for instance, funny, the old Will Ferrell movie, but that's one of our top ten bore boy humorous movies. And there's a particularly a scene in the movie that is so absurd that we, you either think it's hilarious or stupid. If you remember, Anchorman is this uh, kind of play on what it was to be an anchorman, a local newsman in the early 70s. So it's spoofing toxic masculinity as well. And there's a scene where, uh, with an homage to West Side Story, all the rival anchormen from the different stations find, and they turn into a gang war. It becomes a gang war, an absurd gang war. And afterwards, uh, Will Ferrell, Ron Burgundy, sitting around with his guys, and his quote was, well, that escalated quickly. And that little quote that escalated quickly has its own kind of life on the internet. It's interesting to see how that, that one little phrase from a goofy movie often is something we throw out even among our, ourselves. Well, in some levels, the same thing can be said about the Sermon on the Mount, right? You're sitting there and you're feeling maybe pretty good about yourself. Yeah, that's, yeah we all do that, right? We're sitting there. You know, and okay, I'm not the best person in the room. 
But you start going through the Ten Commandments and, you know, I haven't killed anybody. You know, I've been faithful to my spouse. So, you know, maybe the rest of the things I'm a little shaky on, but at least I've got that covered. And then suddenly Jesus gets up and starts talking. And suddenly you realize that this thing got much harder than you thought it was. That this following God, that's escalated quickly to making it pretty tough. I've often said that, you know, if you think Jesus is easy and Paul is hard. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I've heard that. If I've heard it once, I've heard it, you know, a hundred times. I don't like Paul, but I like Jesus. I've always said, if you think Jesus is easy and Paul is hard, then you probably neither have read the entire Sermon on the Mount, nor you've adequately understood Paul's message, all right? Because Jesus is tough. And these are some of those tough sayings of Jesus. Um, And so, what is going on here? Well, Jesus last week, we said, he said, I have come to fulfill the law. Now, we don't quite know what that means, but we begin to see that part of what that means is that Jesus has the authority or takes the authority to reinterpret it. And in many ways, you could summarize this section of the Sermon on the Mount by saying intentionality is as important as action. What's in your heart actually may be more important than what you do or you don't do. Now, Dr. Danielle Hartman, who is now president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, which is the leading think tank of progressive Orthodox Judaism, um, said that when Jesus says that your intentionality is what matters, he's being a good Jew. In other words, some people say this is an innovation, but at least from Dr. Hartman's perspective, this is really always what the heart of the law was about. In other words, it's what your intentionality is, is what matters. It's interesting, you know, Bob, you talked about Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy really is a, the, the, the form we have of Deuteronomy now, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> was something that probably came into existence. Um, it's hard to date it, but it, it comes into existence around the time of the collapse of the southern kingdom, the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, the, Jos- the Josiah reform, which you referred to, is inspired by parts of Deuteronomy. And the whole message of Deuteronomy is they're trying to figure out in Babylon or around the time that they lose the kingdom, how do we get in this mess? So it's a retelling of the old story, of the original story of the Exodus. And actually Deuteronomy's influence goes through Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. In other words, the hand of the Deuteronomistic writers is in all those books. And the story is pretty simple. If you want a plot summary of all that part of the Bible, it is this. When you obey God, things go well. When you disobey God, things go bad. And so part of the uh, attempt of the Second Temple Judaism, which, which was the Judaism of the time of Jesus, was that we need to make sure that we never get into the same mess that our forefathers and mothers got into. So if they didn't follow the law and lost the temple, then we need to follow the law all that much stronger. But that was the fatal flaw. 
what becomes associated with Pharisaic Judaism, which may or not be fair, is this idea that you're so careful not to break the law that you create all these other rules, right? You don't even want to get close, okay? Right? For instance, if you, um, if you don't want people to look into a volcano, it's, it's interesting, different countries have different standards, okay? I was in Nicaragua, and you could go up and look down on a volcano. Okay, so I walked up and looked down in the volcano, and then uh, it had a sign in Spanish that said, uh, staying here longer than 10 minutes can lead to death. Now, it might have been better to have that sign down at the bottom of the hill, right? <laughs> and it might have been helpful that sign was also in English, but nonetheless, it was good I could read the sign, right? right? <laughs> you don't necessarily want to get to the edge of the volcano to realize that you're in trouble, right? And that's the, the thinking behind Second Temple Judaism. We're going to add all these other layers of law, okay? So we don't want to get close to, to breaking the laws, right? But the rabbis, after the destruction of the Second Temple, made this observation. The reason that we lost the First Temple is because we didn't follow the law close enough. The reason we lost the Second Temple was because we followed it too closely. The idea that we became, the, the concern was that we make sure we follow the externals, that we forget the heart of the matter. And that's what Jesus is getting to, the heart of the matter. What is the right intention? It might also be helpful to realize that part of this idea that Jesus is talking about has been you know, fleshed out in uh, Christian social teaching. For instance, Thomas Aquinas says, for an act to be right or good, it needs three things. You need to have a good or neutral action. Okay, Some actions are, are inherently good, but some actions are inherently neutral. You need to use this action in the right circumstance. And finally, most important, you have to have the right intention. In other words, you can do the wrong thing, or you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, and that does not make a good act. And that's part of what Jesus is saying here. It matters what's going on in your heart. So Jesus is shaking things up. And he starts with one that probably most of the people sitting on the hill, on the Sermon on the Mount, felt pretty good about until Jesus got a hold of it, right? Okay. Let's just remind what he says. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Okay. Everyone's, I'm pretty good there. I haven't killed anybody. But I say to you that if you're angry with your brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. If you say you fool, you will be liable to the fires, the fires of hell. Now, if you want to translate those words, I would translate these words this way. If you bear a grudge, if you call someone idiot, if you call someone liar, okay? in other words, by questioning someone's truth, okay? for instance, throwing the term around fake news, for instance, that's, that's basically calling people a liar, whether or not they're a liar or not, right? That would be breaking what Jesus said here. Um, calling person a name. 
What does a name do? Well, a name takes away someone's individuality, right? It's the, when you call someone a name, when you ridicule someone, you're dehumanizing them. Right? Now, I'm not talking about yelling at the referees on television. However, if you're a youth coach and you yell at the referees, you're, you're, you're flirting, right? You're flirting with them. If you're a parent yelling at it. I mean, matter of fact, one of my most embarrassing moments, well, I've had many embarrassing moments, but I was watching a particularly intense lacrosse game with my kids, and I said something maybe a little louder than I should have said, okay? To which the coach said, Reverend Bohr, really loud, would you please be quiet? All right, so not only did I humiliate myself, but I gave the cause of Christianity a black eye that day. All right, so I did penance, all right? Um, but what are we saying here? So, so this anger is it's more than just, I mean, you can be angry and not sin, right? Okay, you, can, you don't, I mean, anger is just a human emotion. It's a response, right? It's a pretty important defense mechanism, right? Okay, what, what does adrenaline have us do? We either flee or fight. So anger is connected to the survival instinct. And there are things that are you know, can make you angry. Someone asked my one son yesterday, uh, the other day, he says, tell me a time when your dad got angry at you. And he told the story, and I actually feel pretty justified being angry. <laughs> when he retold what he did, I go, yeah. And if you keep talking about it, I might get angry again about it, all right? Even though it happened 15 years ago, okay? So there are times when we see things wrong, um, that an anger is, is not an, an illegitimate response. It's what you do with the anger. And anger's, anger is more complicated. You know, we, you know, it's a primal emotion, but it's, it's really complicated. You know, are you turning the anger inward or outward? Um, is your anger a retaliation or is it resistant? Is your anger physical or verbal? Is it controlled or uncontrolled? What's the purpose of your anger? Okay, I, I mean, you know, as a parent, someone would say, "I never, I never discipline when I'm angry." I go, "Well, you know, if I wait until I'm not angry, I might not discipline." Okay, but I, but you know, there's a difference between being angry and in control, and just being angry and primal, right? Sometimes anger is a really helpful motivator, right? Okay, a lot of social justice are working for making the world better is because we're angry about what's going on. Jesus was not happy when he was cleansing the temple. <laughs> All right. I remember, this is why Sunday school can be dangerous. All you Sunday school teachers, I remember as a little child being told, and you should never get angry because Jesus never got angry. And then they told us the story about the cleansing of the temple. So I, I was trying to imagine Jesus with the whip not being angry. I mean, Jesus, come on, guys, come on. <laughs> you know, you know. No, Jesus was angry. Right? And there's, Jesus gets angry frequently in the Bible because there's a lot to get angry about in this world. But the trouble is, we're not Jesus, okay? And so it's very hard for us to be angry and not sick. For Jesus to equate murder with anger, he actually was, was understanding a little bit 
about the culture around him, right? The Roman war machine was an angry and oppressive instrument. And so there's a sense where resentment, entitlement, a sense of your own righteous cause at the expense of other people are all sophisticated versions of anger. And from Jesus' perspective, it's just an extension of killing. We can kill people while they're still alive. Right? You know, we don't we tend not to talk about gossip so much. We get we get upset about other sins. The Bible talks a lot about gossip. Why? Because you can kill someone's reputation without ever using a weapon. The Scots Confession, which is a confession of the uh, early Reformation, says, in interpreting this commandment, it says, the positive of what Jesus is saying here is we are to save innocent lives, we are to repress tyranny, and we are to defend the oppressed. That's the implication of this commandment. Uh, there's a, one of my favorite movies. It won the Academy Award, yeah, I don't know how many years ago, six or seven years ago, uh, for the foreign film. And it's an Italian film. It's called uh, The Great Beauty. And it's, it's a beautiful, stunning film. It's absolutely beautiful. If you, like, if you love Rome, uh, you have to watch this movie. If you don't love Rome, you will afterwards because it's just so visually beautiful. But it's really about the decadence of... A man, he's a writer, he wrote one book uh, in his 20s, and he hasn't really written anything significant since there. Since then, he turns 65, and on his 65th birthday, he's taking account of his life, that he's basically lived one long party for the last 40 years. And it really is all these vignettes of commentary, in many ways, of the decadence of modern materialism. And there's a scene where there's this beautiful ancient hallway. And it's full of all these people, okay? Most of them are older, but they're all different kinds of ages. And there's, <clears throat> there's beautiful music being played, classical Baroque music. A man walks in with an entourage of beautiful assistants. The crowd applauds. One of the assistants sits down and calls out numbers. And then each individual comes up reverently to this man to get their Botox injection. In other words, what's brilliant about the film is for 400 euros a session, which is over $400, they've created an altar as an attempt to remain an object of desire. The command in the Hebrew scriptures against adultery is intended to protect the institution of marriage. And not the institution of marriage as we know it, but almost marriage as an economic unit. In other words, only the only person you could commit adultery against in the ancient world or in ancient Jews was the man. Because you're messing with his property. Right? It's not the man caught in adultery, right? In John 8, it's what? The woman called an adultery. <laughs> what's, what's the glaring thing missing 
in that story in John chapter 8. Well, it takes two, right? Only the woman's in trouble, which actually speaks to the inherent hypocrisy of a lot of what underlies how the Ten Commandments got enforced. And so Jesus, in reinterpreting the command, instead of protecting marriage, he moves to protect the individual. It's not about protecting an institution. It's about protecting individuals. Isn't the same thing about the way he reinterprets thou shalt not kill, right? He moves from protecting life to protecting individual people. One can argue that the birth of a sense of what created the Western idea of the individual, I think you can argue that it happens, it starts, maybe it doesn't start, but the Sermon on the Mount is a very important place where suddenly the individual matters. It's not just about the tribe or the society. It's about the individual. In the pagan world of Jesus' time, it was believed that Eros always wins. <laughs> you can't beat the god of Eros. And, and interesting, behind these two commands, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit adultery, are the two powerful gods of the ancient world, right? The god of war and the god of love. Uh, right? Mars and Venus in the Roman pantheon. Anger and lust are the fallen forms of our two most basic instincts, right? Survival and reproduction. But in Jesus reinterpreting this idea that it's not just about the act, but it's when you objectify another human being, you have broken the spirit of the command. People have not been put in this world for you to use. People are not means towards your ends. The whole Roman society was built on a few people get to have the power and the pleasure and everybody else gets to be used for their benefit. I would argue that we're not too far from that in 21st century America. If you're poor, you don't matter in this country so much. If your skin is not the right color, you don't matter as much. That's as pagan as first century Rome. What's worse is we don't think we are. That's what makes it an abomination, right? <laughs> Romans didn't pretend to be anything other than following the mighty gods. Might is right. That was their credo. But we pretend to be Christian. And Jesus is about very different things than that. And so the Sermon on the Mount is remarkably disturbing. It should disturb us. And what's going on in our society should equally be disturbing to us. I was talking to a mother of a, a teenage daughter. Okay, again, something I don't relate to at all. Okay, and that's way. And <clears throat> it's been a while since my kids were teenagers. <clears throat> But we're talking about one in three women in this country and one in four men have experienced some kind of sexual violence. 
And I said, how do you, how do you prepare your daughter for this world? And you know, she's a very calm person. She goes, it's terrifying. Jesus is saying that we are more than animals. We are created in the image of God. Do not sin against that image in yourself or in other people. Now, again, it's really important. There's a difference. The desire in and of itself is not wrong. That's, that's a wrong interpretation of this. And Christians have gotten this wrong. Why sometimes Christians are so obsessed with sex is because we've gotten this wrong. God created us with these desires. The desires are not wrong. But anytime we objectify another human being, we are sinning against them and we're denying the reality of how God created each of us. Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, the commands are to make us more human. They're not weapons. And they're also not standards to make you feel good about yourself. God has given us his good law in order that we can be good to each other and to ourselves. Because ultimately, when we dehumanize other people, whether it be through racist statements or whether it be through treating people as mere sex objects, we're ultimately dehumanizing ourselves as well. We're not supposed to act like seven-year-old animals. That's not being strong. That's not the way of Christ. And so we have an opportunity to, to live higher, better lives. Does Jesus make it harder? He makes it harder. Okay. And so what does that, first of all, make us do? Anytime we see a command that we have trouble fulfilling, what should we do? We should come back and pray for the grace of God. So there's a sense where Jesus, in part, is saying, you all think you're okay? You're not okay. Remember the book years ago, I'm okay, you're okay? That, that really dates. But that was, you know, that kind of defines, in many ways, what's wrong with self-help, right? I'm okay, you're okay. For Christians, you know, what a Christian says is, I'm not okay, and you're not so hot either. After, you, after sitting there listening to after, uh, can you imagine, you know, going to hear, oh, this, we got, there's this new preacher from Galilee. He's really good, we hear. Okay? Let's go out and hear him, okay? And you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Matter of fact, I'm taking a day off to go hear a preacher. That makes me probably even more righteous than everybody around me. Okay? I didn't, I, you know, I didn't sleep in this morning. I went to church. <laughs> can you imagine... After you got done hearing that sermon, you didn't feel so good about yourself, right? But the good news is when we realize that we need grace, we're open to receive it, right? And that's the power of this and as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. It, it gets worse, folks. I'll warn you right now. But that's why Jesus came, right? Because we can't do this on our own. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and proclaim what we believe.